You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to today's episode of the Transformative Podcast. My name is Lukas Bech. I'm a PhD student and project coordinator at RedSet. We will take a look at historical transformations from a different angle today. To put it straightforward, we will talk about sex education and the cultural transformations associated to it. I am extremely glad Agnieszka Koszczańska is joining us for this conversation. She is Associate Professor at the Department of Ethnology and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Warsaw and currently Leverholm Visiting Professor at the School of Global and Area Studies at Oxford University. Two of her more recent books have just been published in English this year. The book we are mostly going to talk about today is To See a Moose, The History of Polish Sex Education. Agnieszka, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for your kind invitation. To start with, could you take us back to the initial situation and the problems that drove people to make sex an object of education? Yes, Polish sex education has a really long tradition and it all starts in the early 20th century. It's not only in Poland, but all over Central Eastern Europe. There are a lot of discussions around sexuality and gender. And this is the very moment when also in cities like Warsaw and Krakow, sexuality becomes the subject of conversation and also the subject people feel children should be educated about. So if you look at the social settings for these conversations, there is double standard when it comes to gender. So there are different requirements towards boys and different towards girls. And especially when it comes to upper classes of the societies where boys are given way more freedom And girls are expected to wait uh, until uh, they get married and they just really don't know anything about <laughs> what will happen when, they're, when they finally get married. So if girls cannot have sex before being married, then boys have to find some other girls to, <laughs> to, to have sex with. And these other girls are usually women from lower social strata, either the servants or sex workers who were put in the position that, you know, forced them to have sex for money. And there's a lot of stigmatization around this. And then what happens if those boys have this really developed uh, sex life before getting married, they often had some health-related problems, venereal diseases, as it was called back then. And now we are talking about uh, sexually transmitted diseases, which they later on gave to their wives. So that was like a serious problem. And we have to remember that we couldn't treat them as easily as we could treat them now. So because of this, there is a strong need to talk about sex education and to explain what's going on here. And of course, children always ask how it happens that they have younger sisters and brothers. So there is this whole dynamic around this. And there were basically two answers. It's a little bit oversimplistic, but let's call them one with kind of progressive, equality-oriented answer, and the other one was, uh, was a conservative one. So the conservative one would say, well, venereal diseases are because of prostitutes and we should just ban prostitution and keep our boys safe. And then there was also this, this more progressive answer to that, 
saying, well, perhaps we should end patriarchy, we should end sexism and uh, gender inequality, that would lead to, you know, more open discussion about sex and more equality-based sexual relations between men and women. Your book shows how in Poland conflicts about sexuality and sex education unfolded over the 20th century and resulted in transformations which, and here I quote, peaked at the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s in what you call a complete break with the experiences and traditions developed early on. What happened actually? What was this transformation about? Well, so this very early traditions of the early 20th century They gradually developed first in the interwar period and then under socialism. There are strong personal and ideological or educational links between, you know, you can really track genealogies of Polish Planned Parenthood back to interwar period and so on. So those traditions, they developed under socialism. And of course, I don't want to present them as ideal. They often were quite progressive on some level, but on the other, they didn't speak so openly about sexuality or quite traditional when it comes to gender relations. But in the 1980s, Poland got this really good sex education handbook, which treated sexuality seriously, which treated young people seriously. It gave them a lot of really practical knowledge, including sexual positions, uh, really extended knowledge on contraception and also a clear message about gender equality and the sexual rights of so-called back then sexual minorities. So it stated clearly that homosexuality is not an illness. This handbook appeared in school in 1987, but then it disappeared from schools two months later. So it appeared in September and it was removed by November because it was too progressive and too open about sexuality. And there was a huge pressure of the Catholic Church. We are still under socialism. And then the Catholic Church makes its way to push the handbook out of schools. I argue in the book that this handbook from 87 was the biggest achievement of Polish local traditions of progressive sex education. And it was pushed back already before the end of socialism, And then replaced in the 1990s by handbooks and ideas about sex education that were pushed by the same people who are responsible for removing the handbook from schools already under, under socialism. What you just told me defies the common notion of a clear cut between a society under authoritarian rule followed by a linear transformation that brings progress in every regard and leads to a liberal, open, democratic society in which former taboos are lifted. From the story of your book, we can learn that the realities in Poland after 1989 are much more complicated. You did not say much about improvements, though. So I wonder if there were any positive effects of these developments in the 1980s and 1990s with regard to the situation of sex education in Poland today. Yes, you are totally right that we tend to think about post-socialist transformation as openness to liberal ideas. And to some extent it is. So we have the development of feminism, of LGBTQ movements and so on. So there are a lot of really interesting and useful policies coming to Poland from, let's say, the West, just to simplify it. 
And of course, they affect sex education. So the Polish Planned Parenthood, Youth Sex Education, Peer Sex Education Center, Ponton. So there is a lot of going on and there is a lot of sex education run by either feminist or LGBTQ organizations. And this is going on and there's a lot of a lot of discussions around these things. But at the same time, there are conservative ideas that were forged earlier and they are being supported by transnational conservative links and transnational conservative flows of ideas. And then sex education in schools gradually becomes really conservative based on exclusively conservative Catholic thinking of sexuality when sex is only seen as something that can happen in marriage for procreation. And of course, this is not what's going on in real life. So young people, they just want to know these things and they want to make their own decisions. And on top of this, we and young people especially nowadays have to navigate in a world of various, often problematic forms of knowledge about sex. In this context, language and speech seem crucial. Your book's title actually refers to that issue of how people talk and how they do not talk about sex. This, I imagine, must be somewhat special to deal with as a researcher. If what you are studying is often what people do not talk about, how then do you study it? With what kind of empirical material? Which sources have you been working? When I finished working on this book, I was really surprised how long it is, how much material I managed to, to collect. And I have way more. But I think what's really important when you study the history of sexuality and the history of sex education in particular, are voices of young people. And these voices you can find in letters they send to sex educators, to journals, or to sexologists, or Planned Parenthood mail service. So I went through thousands of these letters. And what really struck me while reading them, it doesn't matter if they are from the 1950s, or from the 1980s, or they are just today's accounts. They are always about the same thing. Just young people are way more responsible than we tend to think. And they really want to know about sex before they start doing this. So they really want to know about contraception, about sexually transmitted diseases, about sexual orientation, about sexual pleasure. They really want to know these things. They want to make their own decision. And then parents and, and teachers and educators and priests and moralists, they all see it as their own task to stop young people from learning these things or just limit this knowledge and not to talk about sex, but to talk about other things like in the title of my book about how to go and see a moose, for instance. This leads me to a final question about you as a scholar and a student of sex education. So I would like to ask you if you could reflect about how you understand yourself within this field of conflicting actors you just described. I'm an anthropologist and I strongly believe in what we call public or engaged anthropology. So the role of academics is not only to research, but also to go with what we do to the broader public and try to present what we want to say in a, in a way that people could really uh, read and think about it. So I wrote this book as a sort of intervention into the Polish public discussion about sexuality, to go against this kind of thinking that there is constant progress, that uh, all the good things came from the so-called West. And another stereotype here is that young people are irresponsible and we as adults have this mission to, <laughs> to keep them away from the knowledge. While if we hear the voices of young people, this is quite opposite. 
I'm just thinking that this in a way might be another transformative experience that we, the readers, could gain from reading your book, this listening to the voices of young people. Agnieszka, thank you very much for this conversation. I hope that our listeners learned as much as I did about the somewhat special, unexpected transformations of sex education in Poland in the 20th century. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Redset in Vienna.